All right. Well, good. Well, let's move on to our uh, maybe one of our two main topics. Uh, I have it down as patriarchy and equal partnership um, in marriage. Ann Porter, please take it away. In the August Ensign is an article about patriarchy and equal partnership in marriage. It is by Elder Hafen and his wife. We have not yet received our August Ensign, so I haven't read the article itself, but there has been a great deal of discussion at it at the, at the blog Feminist Mormon Housewives. And the, the discussion revolves around what is often it's it's often the 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 tone and the the tack that these that this kind of discussion takes about we the latter day the church of jesus christ of latter day saints is organized around the patriarchal order uh the 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 and patriarchy is a bad word if you're a feminist it's a bad word um i mean even you can even spit when you say it patriarchy (laughs) and um and the church is very openly and assertively patriarchal in order the the lay priesthood is only given to men the uh the leadership the people who make decisions who run things all hold the priesthood which means they are all men and the it is very and and the proclamation on the family uses the term preside that men are to preside in their homes and the rhetoric around patriarchy equal partnership in marriage priesthood the the male only priesthood often comes back to within an individual relationship the word preside and i was hoping that we could maybe discuss a little bit how how the word preside actually plays out on the ground because when you talk to individuals about their relationships there really is very little about presiding that it seems that anybody actually does that and i'm wondering also what does the church what what is the purpose of using that term the term preside when you're talking about a marriage relationship where really you have equality there within the partners that is something that was very specifically stated that the man presides but he has to listen and the woman has to listen but she also has to say what she thinks communication is supposed to be open equal and very consensus driven so where does the word preside come in there and why is the church continuing to use that rhetoric when it seems so foreign to what is actually happening on the ground? That's not what happens in people's marriages. Interesting. Who's got a response? I I have one. Please. I David. look at um 
I think it's, you know, it's an example of what we saw in the Catholic statement where uh, they say, you know, we're explaining, not changing. You know, where we're trying to explain our way out of what presides means. preside means. We're kind of stuck with this word, and so we reinvent new concepts to explain it away. And um, Melissa Proctor gave a great presentation at the Vermont MHA conference about how evangelicals feel about this notion of presiding, because they have this, um, this notion too. And she talked about the way that evangelical women describe it. And uh, they say things like, um, we arrive at decisions together, but he gets the final word. Or he presides, but I get my say in what we do. Or he decides, but I have to agree to everything. And so it's always, he presides, but he doesn't. <laughs> and, you know, my takeaway from this is that it's largely a ceremonial function. So, you know, when my wife notices that I'm there, I'm the one that actually calls on someone to say the prayer which, you know, half the time she doesn't even notice I'm there, so she doesn't. But, <laughs> you know, there's this notion of uh, presiding in a ceremonial sense. And, you know, I, I think that that's really what it reduces to if we're going to fixate on the traditional meaning of the word preside. But I think the effort is actually to get away from the traditional meaning of preside and explain it in a way that describes um, how marriages really work and that they're there is a conflict then with the with what was said, you know, twenty or thirty years ago about presiding, and what's been said in the last five years. What well, what was said twenty or thirty years ago? Um, well, you had a lot of stuff. Uh, I, I'm trying to think about stuff that was said specific about presiding, but it definitely defined the marriage relationship differently than how things are presided are uh, described now. Ezra Taft Benson uh, gave gave a strong emphasis about not working outside the home, not pursuing careers. And that's something that they've softened up a lot on. Um, there was uh, tended to be a strong emphasis, hearken to your husbands. Um, that's not something that gets said anymore. It used to be obey your husband, right? Now it's hearken? Yeah, I mean, even the temple ceremony has changed. So that the um, the covenant is different in terms of uh, um, it's uh, for a woman to follow her husband as, insofar as he follows the Lord, right? Yeah. That was a factor of the uh, April, 19, April 1990 change. Yeah, John, what are you thinking? Do you preside? Well, I, do you preside? No, I, I do you preside in your home? <laughs> I only with a very, very broad definition of presiding. <laughs> like, like David's, where you're not presiding. <laughs> well, some, I mean, that, that, that's functionally that's that's the direction that the church has gone. If, if I mean, when you listen to the rhetoric from the brethren, uh, it's as if, like David said, they they've become so attached to that word that they must have that word, and yet at the same time. They want you to do anything aside from <laughs> sort of the traditional definition of presiding, where the man comes in and demands this and, and dictates that, and everybody else scurries to obey. They they clearly seem to you know understand that that is not the ideal anymore, and and possibly that that was never meant to be the ideal. I I read a quote from President McKay one time uh, when when he was uh, the president of the church stating basically that if a man, you know, believes that his wife ought to obey him in all things, the man is wrong. You know, that uh, he, he needs to operate, you know, in counsel with her in love and in understanding. And, you know, and obviously this isn't one of our uh, modern Relief Society Melchizedek Priesthood manuals that I saw this quote, um, you know, because once again, the, the song never actually, you know, the song may change, but the lyrics remain the same. It, it's always the same gospel, right? That's one of our constant messages, and 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 so, you know, we have this idea. I mean, me personally, I've I've had to uh, 
sit down and work out what preside has to mean today because the dictionary definition has been completely tossed out the window. And and generally speaking, I, I agree with uh, with David that it it is this sort of apparent ceremonial function. And, and really, we generally use that idea of it in the Church, too. When, when the bishop or the stake president is on the stand, we always note that he is presiding. It's important, apparently, that we note that he's presiding. But at the same time, how much control do they exert over a given uh, meeting? Even even though they are they're nominally presiding, the, the you know it's the the bishop who who made the decisions. If the state president or the general authority comes in and 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 uh, you know is up there on the stand, so it, it seems like it's we have this notion of of this uh, ceremonial meaning to it, and I don't know. I've 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 had to do a lot of thought regarding what the meaning of preside is in order to try and find out how it is exactly I'm supposed to do it yeah. in today's day and age. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a concept that is very much up in the air, and uh, it's a concept, that, as Anne was saying, that where we are sort of meant to intuit what it means, but it's never explicitly stated anymore. And, and I know you have a lot of deep respect for your husband and even for his role in your family, at least mm-hmm. from everything I've heard you say. Yes. So is yeah. there a sense in which you you do think of your husband as presiding in your, in your family, or is that a word you loathe as well? Um, I don't loathe the word, but it just doesn't really apply to us. I, we, um, early on in our marriage, when I was uh, in my very stage three uh uh, that's Fowler stages of faith stage free. My very, uh, very, very naive faith. I, I, I tried very hard to, to turn over to him the priesthood responsibilities that, as a single parent, I had always exercised myself. Um, in in I, I was single. I had two children. And the leader in the family was me. And it became quickly very apparent that my husband really didn't have any desire to be the leader in the family, that he looked at this as a team effort and that we would decide things together. Uh, he's a very, uh, he's a very gentle person and he's, and that's, uh, that's actually been quite a, quite a growing experience for me. Uh, I've, I always used to say that I wanted a guy that I couldn't push around, and the response by my friends was, well, yeah, good luck with that. Um, <laughs> but it, So I married this very gentle man who's someone that I don't want to push around, so I've actually become not as aggressive because he's, it, it, there's no fun pushing around somebody who just is so agreeable. And... Um, <laughs> So the presiding In other words, model, he's, a, he's a really smart man, is what you're saying. He's, he's, he's very, very smart. <laughs> the presiding model just doesn't have any any. It just doesn't have any place in our marriage. It, it and and I'm not saying oh we've decided this and we've decided it. Just it's just that's and I think that that's the way it is with a lot of marriages. That that the rhetoric is that the men are supposed to preside, but where the rubber hits the road, not only do the men not preside, 
but or, nor do the women preside but in the good marriages people work together and the the notion of presiding is just pretty alien to them yeah so it's it's not something that we've had to discard because it was just not anything that ever really applied to how we do things yeah the the interesting piece about this is the another interesting piece about this subject is how the personal then transposes in people's minds to the organizational because the two are very different um the 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 idea of an equal partnership between the men and the women working together to build the kingdom of God here on earth is not so obvious to many women. I think many women just accept that even if they do accept the presiding model within their homes, they, some of those women, those are the women that tend to see the presiding model and the equality within equality. I hated to use that word, but the, the, the parity, yes, the equality of leadership in the church structure itself, whereas people like me who don't see that, uh, who don't have that presiding model in their own homes, don't see the apparent way that men and women work together within the church itself as, as, as equal. The men do preside. The men do make the decisions. Women have influence, but in the end, if a Relief Society president goes to a bishop with a what she thinks is a really great idea, the bishop can shoot her down and she's done. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that the rhetoric among, especially among you know, Mormon feminists who talk about this, even if they're looking at their own lives and saying, well, it, it obviously doesn't work that way in my home, but it is still very patriarchal in the institution. And, and there are a number of women who just simply don't see it that way. And I think that that's, an, that that's a real interesting contrast. That, that the, uh, go ahead. Well, just uh, at, at the same time, it's, it's not... I mean, it's, it, it is a matter of hierarchy, not just patriarchy. I mean, uh, whereas a bishop could, could shoot down a Relief Society president's idea, an elders quorum president could not, at least not, not as far as I know. And, and I, would, I would deeply suspect, you know, what's going on in that ward if something like that took place. It's, I mean, and, and the bishop can just as easily shoot down the elders quorum president's ideas also. It's, I mean, it, it is patriarchal in that, Right now, the priesthood is is given, you know, based on on sex, based on, uh, you know, this idea. Although, did you just, did you just say right now? Did you just say right now, John? I, I did. Yes. <laughs> is that, was there any implication in that that maybe you think maybe it'll change someday or not really? Uh, you know, I, I all I can tell you is is that there have been people called prophetesses in the past. Uh, Women, you know, in Joseph Smith period, were encouraged to engage in some forms of some of things that we consider priesthood duties today, 
And I, I don't think we have the final word yet on, on that. Now, that's just me. Do sure. with that what you will. Okay. But, but in any case, it's, it, you know, it's, it's not just the, the patriarchal notion that's involved with, with this kind of, I don't know, idea of power within the Church. It's also this hierarchical notion. Sure. And, uh, you know, ev- everybody can be shot down by that maverick bishop. It's not just the women who have to, you know, appeal to his uh, sense of duty. It's, it's every member of that ward. Yeah, it feels like the church is big on structure and order. And and that's for, for, I, th- I think that's what presiding is all about, that everybody knows that at the end of the day, if there's a need for someone to make a final say, they know who that person is under that extreme circumstance that maybe maybe it just gives us comfort to know that there's some order and structure to it all but but david tell us two things if if you have any thoughts on what's been said but also i'd love to hear whether you preside in your home and whether your wife would agree with you <laughs> oh heavens no uh i'd cringe if she said that i presided um i mean it doesn't make any sense to me it's, i relate to what ann says where it's just so much more fluid than that we have um you know, the way that we interact and arrive at decisions, there is, you know, never a question of presiding or, uh, you know, anyone having the last word. Yeah. Um, I mean, my thoughts, um, you know, just kind of to uh, go back with uh, John Crawford had said about uh, women having the priesthood right now, I think it's important to notice that in the second endowment, women are actually ordained priestesses and queens along with their husbands. So they are, in some sense, given the priesthood. Do you, think of, do you think of that as, as a priesthood ordination, David? Uh, yeah, I do. I think that, um, you know, there's really no reason in the future why things aren't going to develop such that the idea that women should be ordained doesn't become as obvious as that blacks should be ordained. So you're, you're saying that women... Endowed LDS women hold the Melchizedek priesthood. They just don't have an office right now, and that someday offices might even be added unto them. Well, I'm I'm uh, specifically referring to the second endowment, which most LDS men and women do not receive. Oh, the second endowment. In the second endowment, they're expressly ordained to be priestesses. Is that, is that still going on, second endowment? Yeah, they do several hundred a year. Do we know that, or is that hearsay? Um. Berger's article on the endowment um, in the 80s, I can't remember exactly what year, in Dialogue talked about the second endowment, the fact that they had uh, been doing only a few during the 70s, but then they restarted it again in the 80s. So uh, like, and my understanding is that that's continued. So like well-connected, sort of aged couples get tapped on the shoulder and, and, and they just say, hey, come in, we got a little special treat for you. And is, is that the calling an election made sure? Is that the same deal? Yeah, I, I mean, it um, doesn't end up... Go ahead. Uh, well, John? Yes, in, in general, although the specifics... I mean, I, I haven't read that dialogue article, but uh, from what I've been told, the, the specifics of it are somewhat kept under wraps. And I mean, I... I I guess I'm I'm uncomfortable with the implication that this is something that only happens to like the the best friends and relatives of general authorities or you know the people in the know people who are important in in church functions and things and especially because this is sort of you know in terms of t- temple ordinance this is by by far the the most 
important and most sacred of the temple ordinances. It's, it's a, you know, obviously how it's, how people are chosen for it is complex and, and, you know, I would like to think divinely inspired, so. Well, sure. I, I don't know. Yeah, I didn't. I, I, I'm sorry. If, I'm sorry if I was casual in my description of it, but I, I had no idea it was still going on. Well, um, yeah. According to Berger, uh, they uh, release numbers on how many are every year. Hmm. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I'll have to revisit that article. The um, but as far as the ceremony, um, it's outlined in the diaries of several of the apostles in the 19th century. Yeah, uh, but but I also remember some. Uh, that's that, that, that's accurate. I've I've uh, I've read a couple of those diary entries. So, well, I've also I also remember listening to some Sunstone presentations in the uh, early eighties, nineteen eighties, and I remember Michael Quinn specifically. There was a talk saying if women have held the priesthood since eighteen forty three, why aren't they using it? And the implication was that just the temple endowment itself was, in some people's mind, a conference of the Melchizedek priesthood. Have any of you ever heard that? Um, I've heard that. I don't see it as something that, um, I think the language is too ambiguous to be determinate. Okay. John? Yeah, I would agree with David. Anne? I, I, uh, have a, a kind of a probably semi-apostate view of that, um, but I'm going to go ahead and say it anyway. Whatever power God wants me to have, I have. Yeah. And, um, and that, that exists externally of the ordination that happens within the LDS church. And I'm not saying, oh, I have this power. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is is that if God wants to give me power to act in his name, he can do that, and then I will have it. And, and if you want to call that priesthood, that's fine. I... I if the priesthood is the power to act in God's name here on the earth, then that would be what that is. I don't, and I think that's why the the idea of the need for women's ordination is something that, and maybe it's just because I'm old and I'm tired, but it, it, it's just not something that burns within me. Uh, is which and it's because whatever God wants me to have, He will give me, and He may do that within the context of the church. He may do that outside the context of the church, and whatever I'm called to do, I have whatever authority I need to do it. Sure. So, so Anne, looping back to this article, then, do you, do you see this as as progress? That I mean, it seems like the church is start. I mean, with the with the extended interviews from the PBS series, with the Mountain Meadows release, with these statements on doctrine and on hi- and history, and um, it seems like we're swinging a pendulum back towards openness and and hitting the head issues head on. So, for you or for the women who uh, who you've read their comments about this new article, does this represent a step towards you know the church being more progressive as it comes to women? No. You don't think the so? Comment, no, no, I don't. I, well, and I have not read the article. So, as I said, we have not yet received our August Ensign. I've only read what other people have said about it. But it seems that the consensus is that that the rhetoric is 
is still very much the same in that men preside, but in the family, all decisions should be made equally. Mm, okay. So a- a- as far as I was able to understand it, that's sort of the tone of the article, which I think as we have sort of discussed is kind of um, an odd way to put the word preside. Yeah, right. Well, see, I would see that as progress. If, if we're redefining the word so that it ultimately isn't what, what, what previously was offensive, then I don't know how we can see that as anything other than progress. I don't want to take a step back too because I don't I don't want to say that I believe that the word preside is offense is offensive. Um the the way the evangelical I I had yeah. some friends who were very uh very patriarchal kind of guys who were not Latter-day Saints. They were evangelical Christians and their understanding of presiding was very much in the model of servant leadership and uh, as someone whose role in the family was to act in the role of 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 shepherd leading them helping to helping to lead the family back to god and as and their role their purpose in doing that was was as a servant you don't do that by dragging people so i don't want to say that i think that preside is a is a negative term necessarily. It's just not been my observation that that's actually how things typically work. Right, right. Well, Anne, thank you for leading a, a fascinating discussion. Uh, I look forward to that article coming out. Uh, yeah, me too. And um, it'll be cool to review it. So thanks for the heads up. Thanks to all for the discussion on that. Let's let's uh, round out this discussion today um, with... Uh, a blog post on, on, I forget which blog, probably by Common Consent, but David, it's called Raising Gay Children. So, uh, David, take it away. It's actually, it's another post on Feminist Mormon Housewives. Okay, my and, bad. Yeah, it's um, a letter uh, from a, a mother of an adult gay child who uh, expresses concern over how she raised her own son and her hope that, who... Uh, is gay, and her hope that other parents who raise gay children don't make a lot of the same mistakes that she does. And um, what were her know, mistakes? It, what were her mistakes? Um, let me uh, grab the article. I mean, she discusses some of the um, the harsh rhetoric that the church uses against um, gay, or has in the past used against gays, and um, the. Uh, she describes her eight-year-old boy as praying for a miracle that uh, that he would stop being gay. Um, eight years old? Yeah. Um, my son went to sleep every night for years praying he would not wake up. He once said that cancer would be more merciful. Um, and uh, she says, you know, for, fortunately he's strong and good and smart and has full support of his family. How many don't have those assets and what happens to them? Um, and... You know, she's basically querying the more general issue of how we um, how we treat gays in the church and how we reconcile that with uh, family members being gay. And there's a few issues here. Um, you know, one surrounds the implications of teaching that homosexuality is sinful, and uh, those include that homosexuals won't be with their families forever, um, 
that the church position divide, divides families because acknowledging that homosexuality is sinful uh, ends up being more expressive of loyalty to the church than to the child. And uh, also the challenge to homosexual identity that is created by the notion that a sinful disposition is something that someone's born with, a kind of birth defect. And uh, the second issue, uh, primary issue at stake, is the notion that homosexual rights activists are pushing a political agenda that's harmful to the moral underpinnings of our nation. That's also tied to the notion that homosexuality is sinful. Um, but, you know, that's obviously something that there's a lot of discussion about uh, among the membership uh, with more conservative and more liberal views. Um, and, uh, you know, from, from my point of view, um, I think that Mormons end up making much too much of the fact that homosexuality is sinful. Uh, we don't, for example, I mean, I don't know, um, you know, if a mother discovers that their son is smoking, I don't know that, that, um, that they agonize over that the same way that they do over the fact that their son is gay. I don't wish to, you know, make it any kind of moral equivalence there, but I'm just saying, you know, if it's, because obviously you, you choose to smoke and whether, you, you know, what makes somebody homosexual is a different issue. But uh, this anxiety that people have of it seems to be more reminiscent of a Victorian stigmatization of sexual activities that occur outside the bound of 19th century norms than any kind of rational approach to uh, casuistry. And, um, you know, f frankly, I, I see, um, you know, when I look around at church, you know, I'm, I'm aware that most of the people that I'm with uh, could be doing a much better job in their calling, that uh, they're not necessarily the best home teachers. They've got a lot of baggage that they're carrying around in terms of sins. And then, you know, this notion that then because somebody else is homosexual, they can condemn that sin strikes me as uh, more indicative of a feeling of taboo toward that than a rational approach. Um, and, uh, you know, so, um, you know, I, I think that that focus ends up alienating homosexuals and then the church's uh, focus on sexual transgression, I think, is also uh, something that alienates them. And I'll leave that for the panel to discuss. Hmm. Well, John, what do you, John Crawford, what are your thoughts? You no, know, it's it's a terribly difficult issue, and uh, you know, I think I think if nothing else, you know, one of the ways in which the church has progressed in the issue is that they now at least admit that they admit that it's a terribly difficult issue that they they are. You know, uh, the, the recent uh, news release with Elder Oaks and Elder Wickman, where, where they, you know, expressed sorrow and, and even sort of consternation regarding how, how to approach the, the life of a gay member in, in, in the church. It's, it's terribly difficult. I think primarily, uh, you know, go, basing, going off of what David said, because of the centrality of the family and of the family unit to our a whole notion of heaven and of eternity and and what it the, the, all of our goals within church life and our goals for personal salvation we're not being saved just for ourselves we're always you know we have this notion that what true what heaven truly is is an eternal life with a family and these relationships that we develop with our children and with our spouse throughout time and and there's, you know, with 
you know, homosexuals, although certainly they're, they're able to develop relationships with their spouses and with, with their children, there's this notion that somehow, uh, you know, those, those relationships aren't as grounded or aren't as, well, certainly aren't, aren't as sacred, uh, in, in part because, you know, we don't solemnize homosexual weddings and we don't, uh, you know, uh, if, if you're a teenager and, and you're hetero and, and you kiss a girl, that's not that big a deal. But if you're a homosexual and you kiss another, you know, a, another guy or another girl, that's that's a, a very big deal. And 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 so I, I think it, it really our ambi our not ambiguity, but our our uh, our sort of problem with the whole situation is the the centrality of, of family and, and this notion of family as being this heterosexual union that produces children and, and that develops this you know this chain the, the great chain of humanity that that Joseph and, and Brigham and, and other early prophets talked about how we were going to wield ourselves together uh, weld ourselves together that is and we we haven't yet found a way or 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 a, a set of concepts that allows us easily to integrate uh, homosexual unions in, into that. And I'm, I'm frankly, I'm not sure we'll be able to. And and it it leads to this uh, double bind on on the gay member who wishes to be faithful because, the like David said, there's this feeling that something about their very being, about who they are, uh, is always acting against them. And you know, I. I suppose you can you could make an argument that you know we're all like that as David does that we all have things in us that work against our our own highest ideals, but at the same time uh, many of them aren't you know as as powerful necessarily as the sex drive, and so it it it's just I don't know there's there's no other way to say it except it's a terribly difficult situation and it's one where I don't feel like we right now as a church, feel like we've found our final uh, uh, way to resolve it. It's it's still a, very much a work in progress, I think. And? Um, I think one of the things, one, one of the challenges, especially if you look at this from a point of a parent, is that we all have dreams for our children. And... Uh, I have three children. Two of them are adults. Uh, one is married with two children. The other is a young man. He, uh, the other one is a very young, very young boy. I I have dreams for my children, and among those dreams are a happy marriage and a family of their own that that brings them as much happiness as my children and my marriage have brought to me. And there is, I think, a very real grieving process that happens when it becomes, when, it, when you discover that those dreams that you have for one of your children are not going to happen. And that's a grieving process. Um, and I think it's a grieving process for the child as well as for yourself, the grandchildren you're not going to have necessarily. Um, the the layer of sin that is then labeled on top of that makes overcoming that grief, I think, more difficult for parents. 
I read on a recent uh, road trip, Carolyn Pearson's book. I, I ranted about this in an earlier podcast, John, uh, No More Goodbyes. And yes. it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. And I, I am actually very heartened by some of the changes I have seen in the last five years about, once again, the rhetoric about this. Uh, in the PBS special on the Mormons, when Elder Jensen was speaking about, about, about homosexuals, gays and lesbians, he said, he said, we are asking more from them when we ask from our single heterosexual brothers and sisters. What we ask of them is different. Because we're asking them to forego hope. Intimacy. Intimacy for the duration of their mortal life. We don't ask anyone, we don't ask single adults to forego that hope. Single heterosexual adults to forego the hope of that intimacy even. And his heart just ached for them. And that, that, that was a public statement widely distributed by isn't he a member of the presidency of the 70 um is was very heartening for me i i it's it's a it's a big big change from where we were 20 years ago it's a big change and i i i'm hopeful i don't think anything is going to happen quickly but i think that maybe our children raising children who are gays, gay or lesbian will have a much easier time of it. Well, let me just put all of you on the spot and do a quick little round check. Um, What would be each of yours ultimate hope or aspiration for a gay person's um, church experience? I'll start with you, John. What, what do you what do you dream for someday for this mortal existence for a gay person's experience in the church? Um, that uh, they find a way to make peace with it. Uh, I, there's so so much in in everyone's church experience that where they they find uh, contradictions within themselves, and they look around and find those same contradictions everywhere. And there's always a, a temptation to just chuck the whole thing because nobody can live up to these impossible ideals and and uh, in my own life I've had to accept that most of the ideals that are, are presented to me in church are just that they are impossible and there, there is no way I can ever live up to them and as I do my best to uh, well I don't know how to put it, except as I do my best to, with the realization that they are impossible, uh, live my life the best I can in light of those ideals, but also in light of what what is necessary for me to be happy, for me to have peace, for me to be fulfilled. Um, I try and find a, a compromise that works for me and that I hope would work for a, a gay child. Um, and that... That may mean, you know, if, if things don't immediately change, that may mean that 
the child may only find peace and happiness in leaving the church. And if that's what is necessary, I, I will be sad. I, I will be disheartened regarding it, but he, he or she, they're my child. And that's, that's just how it would be. So I, I would, you know, want them to be as happy as they can be under the circumstances. And I would hope and pray and do everything I could to help them find that peace and to be able to create between themselves and between, you know, uh, God, the peace that they need. But at the same time, uh, you know, I would be, that, that might be the best we can hope for in the church is, is just some modicum of peace and uh, acceptance of one's, one's own self and also of what the church is going to be willing and able to do and a willingness to work within those boundaries. Okay. And what's your, what's your hope? Um, that the, someday the LDS church will be willing to accept uh, gay and lesbian members as members in full fellowship. And how far do you take that full fellowship? What does full fellowship mean to you? How far, you know, how far do you take it? Uh, you don't take away their membership. Okay. So you let them stay members. You let them take the sacrament. You you let them serve in callings. I, it, no, you don't. Mar- I, I I I don't see a temple marriage in the in the in the big scheme of things. Um, but I think allowing people to continue to worship and participate, it, it, I, I think that that would that's my hope. How about uh, and to feel like, and to feel loved and that they belong? How about um, endowment? No, probably not. Um, well, I think one of the problems is is that often people don't come to Latter Day Saints don't come to grips w- with their sexuality until after they're already endowed. So I think that's one of the reasons why often gay men are excommunicated. Oh right! It's because they have already been endowed. That's true. That's a good point, David. Any any hopes or specific policy things that you would love to see, or you know, cultural things? Uh, just quickly, uh, uh, by way of trivia, um, it's interesting to note that people that have had transsexual operations are expressly barred from getting temple recommends. Yeah, that's true. But uh, that's in the um, bishop's handbook of instructions. Yeah. Um, You know, I don't know to what degree it's possible, but ideally gay people would be able to participate in the church in a way that when the fact that they're gay comes up, it doesn't, it's not something that puts them on the spot or distances them. Um, It's, uh, you know, no different from when you talk about the fact that you have uh, Irish uh, ancestry or something. And um, again, I don't know to what extent that's possible, but that would be um, you know, if I had uh, gay children and, you know, my children are young enough that, it's, you know, anything's possible, uh, that would be, you know, what I would consider ideal. I'd kind of like to, I'd kind of just, I, I would love to see that someday, 50 years down the road, when when a gay couple gets married legitimately and legally, that... um that they're able to raise their children if they choose to have them in the church, 
that that's not considered a sin, that they're not, like Isaiah, like you said, they're not threatened to excommunication. And that um, it, it'll no longer be seen as, as any more evil or bad or, you know, or unwelcome as as somebody who swears or occasionally is dishonest in their business dealings or, you know, maybe eats a little more than they should or, you know, whatever the sin may be that is viewed as one of many I, I, not that I think it should be viewed as a sin, but at least that it's not stigmatized in a way to where those people can't hold callings. I would love to see a married gay person be able to hold a calling in the church and, and not have a problem with that. So, so you know, that's sort of my minimum bar for hope. Do, do you guys, um, do you guys see this as actually um, changing? Like, if I had to say in fifty years, <clears throat> do you think we'll be there? Th- this woman in the article. David, she ends by saying, um, my daughter once confirmed me, uh, comforted me with this thought, quote, my generation doesn't hate gays the way yours does, and pretty soon you'll all die off and it will be just fine for them. Uh, Things are changing even in our conservative church, but it might not be fast enough for at least a few of our gay brothers and sisters. So 50 years, is this just another issue that, that goes away? Is that the hope? I think there's going to continue to be change. Um, it, I don't know how fast it will be or whether it will be 50 years, but you know, it was only a few decades ago that the official position was if you think that you're gay, go ahead and uh, get married and try to forget about it. And don't tell your wife and it'll go away. Yeah, and that's uh, no longer the uh, church's advice to gay people. Yeah. Um, and I think that is a, a function um, of the fact that the church membership is more sexually liberal, and uh, there's a recognition of the need to address these things in a more nuanced manner. Yeah. At, at the same time, I, uh, we've got, if, if we are going to normalize uh, homosexual uh, relationships within the church, we, we've got to find, we, it's going to take some sort of revelation or some sort of doctrinal notation regarding what the role of you know, a homosexual would be in the eternities. You know, uh, telling someone, you know, perhaps that they'll be they'll be married in the temple forever to their homosexual partner. You know, if especially if we have notions of eternal gender and it, these these notions that you know one of the things we'll be engaged in and in the next life is the perpetuation of new families. We we have to address you know what that would mean in the case of. A homosexual union, and, and what what sort of eternity that would entail? And right now, uh, I mean, we just don't. Whereas we might have the uh, societal, the social wherewithal to allow uh, homosexual members sort of regular membership, even if they are in a committed gay gay relationship. Um, we, we just don't have the doctrinal wherewithal. We have nothing that would seem to indicate that there's a any sort of eternal role for that sorts of relationships. And until we do, it's, I think it's just going to continue to be this uh, no-man's land in, in terms of how we deal with it, where we, we just simply don't know, and, and we, we, may, we may feel guilty because we may not feel like we have a legitimate reason to discriminate against them in, in church or in church courts or things like that, but at the same time, we simply don't know what to do with them. And unless that changes, um, I don't see in us moving 
much beyond our position right now. I, I don't think it's our, our social ideas that are holding us back. I think it's our doctrinal ideas. And, and when I say holding us back, I don't mean... I don't know necessarily that our doctrinal ideas are wrong or or that uh, there's anything that's going to change about them on, on the front of homosexuality. I just mean that it's the doctrine right now that's, that's uh, sort of... Uh, creating this issue. It's not, I don't think, uh, a sort of rampant homophobia or anything like that. Yeah. Um, I, I will say that it is interesting that, that even the church's most recent press release on doctrine, basically what it says is there's, you know, it's kind of like George Orwell's Animal Farm. All animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. Uh, the, <laughs> the, the, the statement basically says, there's lots of doctrine, but some doctrine is more important and central than other doctrine. Um, and uh, I guess I could envision a day where this doctrine is is marginalized and uh, not not emphasized and, and not um, taught as 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 is the God man sort of theory that that we used to really emphasize and teach. Um, so so there's a there's a bit of a hope hope there, but also you know there are always these families where different things happen maritally, like like let's say uh, you know we don't know who's getting get married to who in the afterlife because of divorces or people aren't ceilings aren't canceled or whatever. There's always this general notion in Mormonism that when you can't really rationalize it, they sort of end by just saying, well God's going to figure it all out in the end and and it'll all be fair. I can see a day where where that's going to be the answer um, for for the gay people that have been mainstreamed, where, you know, yeah, we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but God will take care of it. Do you guys see that as possible? I, I think that's our current notion. Yeah. I, 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 I really do. I, I think that that is, you know, we, we don't understand what the role is for someone who is born gay. Uh, that's... Well, isn't our current notion, current. isn't our current mainstream notion that, that this is a sin and they're probably going to hell? Or, or going to Telestial Kingdom? Uh, I, I, I don't... No, I, I don't I mean don't me and you. Uh, let's say mainstream church, not us on the panel. <clears throat> well, the current view of sexual transgression is certainly that they're going to end up in the Telestial Kingdom. Um, so they don't even qualify, you know, as people who had testimonies of Christ but weren't valiant at the terrestrial level. Um, so... Uh, I don't agree, uh, John, that uh, the church's current position is that, you know, it'll all work out in the end. I think that there is very much still the uh, the view expressed by Kimball in the miracle of forgiveness about the seriousness of sexual transgression. Well, I, uh, you know, it, it's possible that it's, it's the crowd I hang out with, but uh, I, I don't know. I think that uh, notion is, is dying out as... Well, as, as society is changing and, and the notion of being homosexual has become more mainstream. And and as a result, people are encountering people who are openly gay more often. And, it, you know, it's the same it's the same thing all over the place. As, as people encounter Mormons and realize that we're not Amish and that we're not uh, cultists uh, in, in any sort of satanic sense, uh, that, you know, they, they have to readjust their positions. And I think that's certainly happening quite a bit in the Church, that... You know, uh, as as people encounter homosexuals who aren't, I don't know, wanton or who aren't, uh, <laughs> uh, you, you know, uh, 
I, I don't even know. I'm, I'm lacking at Just say the stereotypes. <laughs> Just say the, the negative sure. stereotypes, maybe. Sure. And as people encounter those those people, then, you know, they're, they're forced to sort of reassert, you know, this, uh, you know, these, these people are, are perfectly normal and, and are in many ways just as Christian as we are. And, and why, why would a, a just and merciful God condemn them, you know, to, to the celestial kingdom, I suppose, the, the LDS version of hell? You know, especially when it's something where it seems like they don't necessarily, they have, it doesn't seem like they have, you know, control regarding that particular aspect of themselves. That, that seems, you know, beyond our, our notion of what a just God would do. Mm. Yeah. Well, fascinating. So, so David, thank you so much for um, leading us in this also very important and somewhat sensitive topic. Uh, and thanks to you all for engaging in it. Um, let's uh, let's go ahead and come to our famed end of show, uh, where we each uh, maybe share a rant or a thought uh, with the audience. I hope each of you are ready. And because you're the veteran, I'm going to call on you first to allow the others to scramble in case they're not prepared. So, Anne, what is, what is your rant? My rant is about the website, LDS.org. It has been reorganized, and there are some wonderful new features there. I, on a weekly basis, I'm the chorister for my ward, and on a weekly basis, I go to the music section and practice the hymns. You can go to the hymns. You can pick them in alphabetical order. It plays them. You can change the key. You can change the speed. You can pick out a specific part and listen to it. The uh, my props to my props to your bro, John. <laughs> the 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 enhancements to the website are just wonderful, and I would highly recommend that you, if you haven't checked out the LDS.org website, that you hop on and see some of the great new features that are available in the Gospel Library. My favorite piece is the hymns. I check it out if you haven't. It's great. Well, thanks, Ann. I'll make sure and let uh, Joel know that you're happy with it. I'm very happy with that. <laughs> right. Although I did mention to him on his blog that I was a little bit dissatisfied with how long it took to move me out of the dissolved steak into my new steak, but it <laughs> happened not long after. I'm sure it was directly a result of my comment on his blog. Well, <clears throat> if if it was good, Joel did it. If it's not so good, <laughs> it, it's a it's a holdover from the previous uh, administrator. Administration, okay. <laughs> All right, John Crawford, do you have a rant for us? Yes, uh, not a specifically LDS one, but I'm uh, uh, I'm tired of, of people picking on Harry Potter <laughs> and, and calling calling it derivative and, and, and saying it's just warmed over Lord of the Rings or warmed over Star Wars. There's only there's only so many plots possible out there and only so many conflicts out there. And she J.K. Rowling's done an excellent job with the plots that she has. And even though it may seem to you similar to a thousand other stories, that's because all stories are basically similar. Go out and read Joseph Campbell or Jung or somebody. Just get a grip, people. Everything's derivative of something else. Calm down. <laughs> and also, you cannot use Harry Potter to learn witchcraft. You can only learn, learn, use it to learn bad Latin. Thank you. <laughs> uh, John, have you, um, do you have the new, do you have the new uh, seventh and final book? I, I don't yet, but it's, it's just a matter of time. Just a matter of time, okay. Well, thank you for that rant. Very appropriate on this week of uh, the release of number seven in the series. 
So, David, do you have a, a rant to end uh, end us with? Um, I do, and mine also is not a, uh, a particularly Mormon-oriented rant, but um, I uh, saw Rocky Balboa, the, the Rocky Six movie. Yes. Yeah, and uh, I... Uh, what's that? I was just saying, you did? I'm sorry, I'm interrupting. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I did, yeah. I um, went ahead and watched it on pay-per-view. It's not the kind of movie that uh, my wife would go to see with me, and she's out of town, so I have a lot of spare time. But she, um, you know, it's it's a terrific movie. It reminds you why we liked Rocky in the first place, because the first one was really a good movie. After you know, then it devolved into formulaic action stuff uh, and got very stupid. But I'd recommend it for anyone. It's a great movie, and it um, is uh, worth seeing. Well, beautiful, uh, Rocky Balboa, run out and. Uh get the dvd as soon as you can thank you thank you david well i just want to thank all our listeners for tuning in again to uh mormon matters podcast i want to thank our wonderful and interesting and fascinating panelists including uh of course ann porter john crawford and david king landreth i want to thank all of you for coming on the show you've been wonderful thanks for having us it's great always john yes thank you and um Likewise. So uh, for our listeners, please check us out at mormonmatters.org. You can comment on this episode or any of our past episodes. Please tell your friends about us. uh, And we very much look forward to sharing uh, another week of uh, thought, provocative thought, and uh, current events, news, politics, etc. with you again soon. So thanks for tuning in, and we'll join you again next week. To hear more of this wonderful music, please check out ClaytonPixton.com. That's C-L-A-Y-T-O-N-P-I-X-T-O-N.com. Thank you very much.